Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello everyone and welcome to History in Technicolor with me, David Crowther, and with my partner in crime, uh, Wolf O'Neill. Excellent. Now look, uh, should we have a quick discussion about Monty Python or not? Yes, let's do it. We clearly haven't talked about them enough. We haven't. It's quite interesting that the most popular film in our highly scientific poll was... Uh, the Holy Grail, more than the life of Brian. Mm, everyone agrees with us. I think they do. I think we said the life of Brian was the best movie, didn't we? Yeah, but I think we also said that Holy Grail was our favourite, right? Ah, okay. I'm going to take your word for it because my memory is uh, the same strength as a goldfish. Basically, the whole world is constantly new to me. Anyway, I thought it was fun uh, and it was great uh, to see what people's favourite sketches were and favorite films were and just discuss all things python was great yep i enjoyed reading everyone's comments very good so this week uh a change in Aaron's scenery a change of pace and we're going to do kingdom of heaven why did you pick this film david ah that's a very good question uh wolf essentially because you made me Uh, i made you also Yes. Also, I have a bone to pick with both you and with the listeners who chose this film on Facebook, because that's why we're doing it, because we had that poll and everybody said, more Kingdom of Heaven is great. This is a film, Kingdom of Heaven, that I have always loved. 
And then when forced by you lot, by public opinion, to look at it more closely, it's a bit like putting my glasses on when I'm looking at the mirror. What I had previously seen as a rather attractive-looking blur in the mirror turns out to be a mass of wrinkles and character flaws. I mm. curse you, Wolf. I curse you, and I curse everybody listening. Is that clear? Yes, uh, I am cursed. Great. Well, as long as that's clear. So that, in brief, is why I'm doing the Kingdom of Heaven. Okay. Are, are you mad? Be- are you mad because it's the director's cut, and the director's cut ruined the movie for you, or just because you had to concentrate more on it for the episode? I had to concentrate on it more for the episode, and suddenly realise how many holes there are throughout the whole darned thing. But yes, I should note we are watching the director's cut because everybody says that's a whole load better than the non-director's cut, although it is, at three hours and nine minutes, substantially longer. Whether or not the director's cut is better than the theatrical version, what would you say to that, Wolf? I think... I've only seen it twice. Once when it first came out, which was the theatrical version, and I thought it was okay, but it never really left any lasting impression on me. And a second time now. Is there much difference? Not that I can really remember anything that happened in the film is stuff that I, I roughly remember. So I am wondering, you know, what it did with that 40 minutes. That being said, kind of maybe just from reading other people's opinions, it's possible the film didn't make much sense the first time around some of the intricacies of it. And it definitely was a lot clearer this time. But to me, the difference is, is marginal. I, I can't really tell. I am entirely of your mind. I read these tear-stained reviews on the line which are describing how Ridley Scott's director's cut movie is actually one of the great works of art in the entire millennium, whereas the theatrical mm. cut wasn't worth the rough end of a pineapple. And really, I couldn't tell the difference, to be honest. So that might give you an idea of the quality of this review. So shall I tell you about the film and what it is and all Please the rest do. of it? Please do. So, 2005 movie, directed by one Skidley Rot, otherwise known as Ridley Scott. Cast, quite a big, well-known cast. It's got Orlando Bland as uh, Balian of Ibeline. It has Eva Gris as Sabella, Jeremy Irons as Raymond of Tripoli, or it's called Tiberius for some reason in the film. David Thewlis as a hospitaller. Brendan Gleeson... Uh, Martin Sokas as Guy de Lissignon. I mean, a whole lot of really good. Martin Sheen pops up as priest. Liam Neeson is Balian's dad. And Hassan Massoud is extremely good as Saladin, or Saladin, as I should say. And you spend most of the movie just spotting random people from Game of Thrones? Is that right? I don't, I'm a bit, I have a difficult... Have I told you my Game of Thrones thing? Well, uh, uh, probably. Probably. Game of Thrones is a bit like eating sugar, that while you're watching it, you need more and more. But once you've finished, you just feel like being sick. Uh, Not not that up on Game of Thrones. I think, yeah, my my general point is that there's so many, you know, British character actors in the film that at one point, sometimes you can see three or four people who are all going to be in Game of Thrones together um, on screen. Very good, yes. Well, it, it is stuff full of people. So 
Uh, it had a rather difficult critical response. Some of the actors were praised, but Olundo Bland was not considered to be up to the part. The film as a whole was sort of a minor flop. It bombed a bit in North America, did better over here, but was not, as people had hoped, the next gladiator. Out of interest, based on some of the reviews oh, that yeah. I've read, could you tell if there was um, like a religious backlash to the movie? Um, oh, yes. Christian quite a religious circles and from Muslim circles. And it, do you think that it's possible that there was a certain boycotting of the film that happened? I don't know about that, actually. I did read lots of people saying oh, this is really nasty to Christians, and we'll talk about that later. Uh, whether it, that meant there was an actual boycott of it, I don't know, actually. Well, I just wondered. I just wondered if that would impact the audience going. Yeah, maybe it did. Maybe it did. Our Skiddly Rot then released a director's cut later the same year, much longer for five minutes, as we said, which is what we're reviewing. And the news on the wires, as I say, is not that it's not just like Lord of the Rings with extra hobbits thrown in, but it transforms the film from an action pit into a character-based movie. I'm not convinced that it really does to be honest. But hey, who am I to judge? So here's a story of Kingdom of Heaven, Wolf. You ready? Mm -hmm, I'm ready. We are introduced at the start of the movie to a blacksmith in the south of France and given to understand that his wife has committed suicide. There is a priest, quoth he, called Martin Sheen, who's really horrid about her and steals her necklace. So the blacksmith, who is called Balian and is played by Orlando Bland, kills him. Turns out that uh, Orlando is, or Balian, is the bastard son of a major landowner in Outremer, the cru crusader states in Syria. This is Liam Neeson, who comes to say, really sorry about deserting you and all, forgive me, but let's go and get some father-son time. Fortunately, he also very handily gets killed. So against all the medieval laws of inheritance, Balian hops off to the Holy Land to sweep up the inheritance that he wouldn't have been good given because he's illegitimate. There we see some of the iconic events of the history of Outremer, the Battle of the Horns of Hattin, the power, the battle that breaks the power of Outremer. We see Salah Adin, we meet Guy de Lusignan, we meet Baldwin V, the leprous king of Jerusalem, we meet Sybil, his sister, we meet Raymond of Tripoli. We see the fall of Jerusalem and then, tired of the world, Balian returns with the Queen of Jerusalem at his side to being a blacksmith in the South France, where Sibylla, or Eva Green, the Queen of Jerusalem, continues her world-beating series of enigmatic smiles, because that does seem to be a major part of her contribution to the movie. Just before it all ends, we, we, we meet one of England's most iconic kings, as it happens, Richard Coeur de Lyon, although he seems to have lost his uh, Edinburgh accent at the time. Speaking so of that, Game of Thrones... I think oh, yes. it's Ian Glenn from Game of Thrones who plays Richard the Lionheart. Okay, very good. Game of Thrones. So that is the story in brief. I thought I did rather well there. I should summarise it so briefly. What did you enjoy the experience of watching the movie Wolf? I did. Um, yes, it's incredibly long, but I was never... While I can't pretend to be... Uh, enthusiastic the whole way through. I was also never unengaged, and I was never bored. Um, it, you know, it looks pretty nice. Um, it's definitely a fascinating story, and there's so much potential, and it's a little bit confusing all the politics going on. So I'm pretty engaged, or you know, all the way through. But I will be honest. 
the whole time I'm watching this, my brain is thinking, this is not as good as Gladiator. Now, you might say, well, you know what? Were you really thinking that? You're comparing it to Gladiator. I, th- I mean, yeah, he makes uh, Black Hawk down in the middle. But, you know, Gladiator comes out in 2000, and then this mm-hmm. comes out five years later. And to me, it feels like somebody returning to the scene of their, like, one of their greatest successes to try and recapture that. Um, just recapture everything they'd achieved in Gladiator, again, but on, like, a bigger scale. And to me, it right. just didn't work. Like, I don't find the conversations as enjoyable. I don't find the action sequences or the spectacle mm-hmm. comes close to what I feel when I watch Gladiator. And I'm not saying Gladiator is a perfect movie, and I wouldn't compare the two if, if it wasn't for Ridley Scott. But there's this there's a, a looming shadow of, like, um, a better product for me um, that exists. Maybe it's because Orlando Bloom is kind of continually, you know, lethargic. Um, and it yeah. kind of pulls the film down. But, you know, the he fight rather, in the wood. rather fey, isn't he? Yeah. And yeah, he, I don't know. Not to compare him to Russell Crowe, because that's, that's not the point. But he, he can't really carry this movie. And it's interesting that the initial reviews said that. And everyone mm. who loves the movie, all, you know, all these five-star reviews that I've been reading about how incredible the director's cut is, they're all like, yeah, if there's one misstep, it's Orlando Bloom. I don't feel quite that so strongly about him, but I do know what you mean. He's no, he is no Russell Crowe. So, in terms of what the film is is like, uh, I have some market research to do. Uh, what is the, the question is, what is the film really about? Which is a question we're supposed to be asking ourselves every week. Mm-hmm. So, I'm going to follow market research principles. Please answer the following questions from 1 to 10, okay? With 1 being... Totally disagree. Mm-hmm. Five being neither agree nor disagree, and ten being yeah, totes. Okay. Okay. So, is the film about one man and one woman struggles to find meaning in a world of violence, change, and disappointment? Six. Six. Okay. So, not much then. Mm, that but was my I favorite think, option. I. The reason I say that is because I think that. Bloom's performance is not up to snuff. And as such, it it drags down my interest or kind of following through of his character for the whole movie. I don't care as much. Um, okay, but I, but in terms of what the film is about... Uh, okay, well, yeah, maybe I could push it to a seven. I think... Okay, okay, don't let me push. Don't let me push six. Okay, let's just go with that. Is it or is it B, a hard-hitting expose of just how rubbish Christianity and the church really are and how everyone always hated them and never believed in God anyway? Five. Five? Yeah, I'm going to sit on the fence. Yes, that really is a cowardly answer, Wolf O'Neill. Okay. Coward. Yeah, but I think... I think the film really does dump on Christianity for half of the movie, but then also isn't so committed to like turning on it. To me, the film cares more about like faith rather than any particular organized religion. We will go into that. Okay. Or is it C, a glittering display of just how cool and dramatic medieval warfare really was and how everyone must have a trebuchet in their back garden just in case, case Posty gets nasty? Uh, I think the enjoyable answer is a 10 for this. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it's 
braver, braver. Well, also, uh, clearly, it's not what the movie is about, but this is the reason that everyone went to watch the movie. Mm. Mm. And I that think is true. So the film cannot really be about this, but what you've, you've hit the nail on the head. This is what everyone wanted from the movie, and I almost wish there was more of this in the film. Yeah. You can't get enough trebuchets in a movie, can you? Okay, so that's very good. So that's what it's about. Then all the last option, is it about a shark? Now, it's clearly not about a shark, but if that shark <laughs> is religious fanaticism, then yes, it right. could be. Ah, okay. I asked the wrong question, and you answered the right question. Very good. Okay, so hopefully that gives a sort of bit of an idea of some of the themes uh, in this film. So... The good things from my point of view, and we'll come back to us, your good things, are it is a visual feast, a physical feast. And the battle scenes in particular on the walls of Jerusalem are absolutely superb. At one stage, they pull down all the trebuchets in one go, and I cheered, Wolf, I cheered. Do you mean the siege towers? Yes, the siege towers. Sorry, yes, pulled down all the siege towers. Pardon me. It has a smorgasbord of characters, many of whom I kind of recognise from Stephen Runciman's battle, uh, histories of the Crusades, which is did once used to be the Bible for old people like me. You know exactly how bad the baddies are in the movie because how really bad, and who the goodies are because they're really good looking. So. It's not a film complicated for me, movie. Just, so I just have to, to ask. Who you're going to support. Yes. And I'm not saying this is a wrong opinion. Are you saying that Jeremy Irons is incredibly good looking? Mm, he's great. Don't you think? Yeah, but can he you, also does Can you just a... eat him? Yeah, I, I guess. Uh, never, yeah, I didn't. Okay, <laughs> yeah. I, I think I was thinking. Oh, more he's really like... good looking. I mean, a well designed scar. Is actually superb. Well, isn't it? Oh, that was I the question I, I was going to. I was going to ask: it, Does the scar put you yeah. off? But no, no scar is fantastic. Okay, I like a nice scar. Another thing: it is a great story of intrigue, politics, warfare, power, even a bit of nookie in there, and some child murder. So, it's got a lot. There's a lot going on to keep your interest. It, definitely. Definitely good. The director's cut maybe is a bit better at character development, although mm -hmm. I would hardly describe that as being its great triumph. But Sibylla, for example, she has a series of Hobson's choices, uh, and that works quite well in illustrating the kind of uh, hideous dilemmas that women in medieval in the medieval world often had to face, uh, especially if you happen to be heir uh, to the queen of uh, to the king of Jerusalem. Um, there is a real sense of impending tragedy throughout the movie, I felt. You know, you feel that this is a machine taking towards a conclusion, which is not a good conclusion. Uh, you know, we see the Crusader states inevitably driving themselves to destruction. And for me, that is the great story about Outremer, this extraordinary state, um, you know, which is kind of absolutely exceptional piece of history and uh there is that feeling of this endeavor inevitably doomed to failure and i think you get that from the movie and then finally there are some great performances brendan gleason is delightfully camp as renoir de chatillon hassan mohammed is a put in a perfect hero i adore jeremy irons grizzled and hard bitten as he is so what did you think of the positives of the movies 
Yeah, I, I I generally agree. I think the scale is amazing. I kind of applaud the the ambition to make this in the first place, and it, it, it's impressive. And the the costumes look great. The it's it's so enjoyable to watch the battle sequences in the full you know knight's armor um, on horseback. There's uh, a visceral feel to so much of the combat. Um, it's exhilarating and the politics are fascinating and it's this kind of tumultuous period all these people like undermining each other um i think there's a lot of good stuff going on but i don't know if there's enough good stuff going on to fill you know three hours ten minutes of which it's still somewhat that still doesn't seem to wrap everything up Mm. and in fact despite all the content um i did feel the time dragged a bit Okay, things I don't like, and I've got a question for you here at this point. Mm-hmm. So I read an article in the New Statesman the other day, which for my sins uh, I get every week, and it was a very good article where it mentioned that there was a chap called C.S. Lewis, who you, of course, will know, presumably, mm-hmm. who accused the modern world of something called chronological snobbery, a belief that everyone in the past was stupid and rubbish. So with Kingdom of Heaven in mind... How fair do you think this is? Uh, this was a really interesting question. Hmm. I thought about it a lot, and I still don't know if I have a definitive answer. Mm-hmm. I think if I'm sitting slightly on the fence to begin with, I think it's slightly hard to judge this film because it's not attempting to recreate the past. It's attempting to like dramatize the past and then fill it with modern viewpoints rather than old fashioned ones. There's a slight there's a slight mishmash. It's like all the good characters have modern views and the bad characters have mm-hmm. old fashioned views. So th- there is some divide and as a result the old the people with old fashioned views come off the worst, but they're also the baddies. And I but I don't even think it, the film thinks that they're stupid. I think the film thinks that they're evil. Like deliberately and consciously evil rather than dumb. Yes. I should I think that's a that's a good point. I mean, I would, but I, I would run the two together in the chronological snobbery thing, that uh, you know people were were bad, evil, evil, brutal, you know, all the rest of it. But I take your point. I think there is a difference, and you're quite right to to note it. Yeah, I think generally, like the film, you know, shows us that there's this over reliance on God to kind of impact everything. Um, but to me, the film isn't tremendously critical of faith and belief in of itself, but, you know, particularly hates zealots and anyone who's too extreme in their views. Um, and I think that the film has a lot of respect for so many of its main characters and doesn't want to portray them. It, it portrays them in a really good light. You know, uh, Balian, Tiberius, um, uh, Sibylla. Um, so many of these characters, I don't think the film is viewing them badly or negatively. But like I say, I think it's because they are uh, funneled through modern views and there's a kind of a purpose mm. to the film. So yeah. it doesn't want to display them in a negative way. So I think the film starts with a first slide, which almost completely ruined the entire movie for it for me. <laughs> okay. It said something about medieval Europe is sunk in poverty and injustice. And that made me want to rip, tear and destroy, although not necessarily in that order. 
it's such a complete misunderstanding of what the medieval world was like, where it came from, what made it tick. Such modern arrogance and chronological snobbery made me want to burn the movie and Rid Ridley Scott with it. It it definitely makes Europe, especially France, look like a hovel, a terrible place. It's so dark and grim all the time. And the film doesn't yeah. become light and kind of breezy until you get to the Holy Land. But it's more that statement. It's medieval Europe sunk in poverty and injustice. Uh, it's just a travesty. And no one who is capable of saying that could make a film that is convincing about another period in time. Fair enough. Okay. Second point I didn't think I didn't like about it is the suspension of disbelief required is genuinely Herculean. So there's this blacksmith geezer, right? Arrives in the Holy Land, in it, and everyone says, Oi, blacksmith, bastard geezer, come on, let's have some fun. Even the, I mean, there's no way this would have happened. It's a terrible impression of Dick Van Dyke, obviously. I'd like to formally apologize for it. There's no way. A bastard would have inherited. There's no way this outsider with no roots, uh, no men, no command would be accepted by the society there. The king even gives him command of Jerusalem. I mean, the queen of Jerusalem wants to get inside his pants and gets hitched. And there was a terrible <laughs> other bit where... This blacksmith geezer teaches an entire village in the parched desert about irrigation from one well, which produces a veritable red sea of water. Amazing that people have lived in Syria for thousands of years and never thought for one moment of irrigation. And yet this bloke from south of France comes along and teaches them all how to do it. I mean, just. Mm. just That's a good point. Absurd. Yeah, no, I mean, everything you've said is true. I mean, I don't feel as angry about it because I'm, you know, less familiar with the history, but... <laughs> you need to and get I... angry. I mean, next week you're going to get angry about Zulu. This week you need to get angry about Kingdom of Heaven. Okay, well, if you keep giving me this information, I'll keep getting angry. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll give you some more then. So we've kind of touched on it. <clears throat> the way Christianity is treated made me very, very cross. Ridley the Lad did defend himself by saying that he needed to make it comprehensible to modern audiences. But really, is it necessary to believe that everyone in the past were these kind of ecumenical humanists, cynical uh, to the back teeth about God? Every Christian in it, especially the churchmen, are dribbling lunatics as opposed to the quietly reasonable and gentle Muslims who just pretty please want their city back please and then we can all go back to flower arranging the patriarch of jerusalem Her heraclius was not the sniveling coward presented in fact he organized the resistance in the city before balian arrived though he did it has to be said heraclius did leave the city with loaded up with wagons of gold plate so you know there is some truth in the anti-christian bias people are incapable of making proper films about the past and the way Christianity and belief in God was. And it really annoys me. Um, how much uh, stock do you put in the argument that this film is entirely influenced um, by 9-11? And 
that event completely changed, you know, the landscape of kind of all media that was being created at the time. And the film's view on like religious fanaticism kind of stems from, from, from that kind of influence. I assume that the film's point of view is not to instigate more anti-Muslim hate, but to use an example of kind of Christian extremism as like a, a, a learning example and to kind of put the shoe on the other foot. I don't know. He is incapable of really representing how people in the medieval world felt about God and religion. And we're very, we love having a hack at the church. And there are many things in which, you know, I can see why we do. But the church in medieval days, in a day where science was far less advanced, gave, to the vast majority of people, gave people meaning. And we find it impossible to accept that. But it is true. Whatever your religion was, Christian or Muslim or whatever, it gave meaning to everything around you. And people really, really believed that kind of cynicism that you see in the movie is entirely modern. And Ridley Scott just could not dare to have the balls to try and represent religion faithfully. I rest. No, I mean, I completely agree. While I understand exactly why they did everything they did in this movie, and I can still enjoy watching the movie, I am completely... I'm watching it from a distance. When Balian gives his speech on the walls of Jerusalem, you know, trying to unite everybody, like, oh, first there were these Muslim relics, and then there were these Christian relics, and it all doesn't mean anything, and we're all in this together, and I don't really care about religion, I care about you, every one of you. And I'm also going to make you all knights, um, and we're going to stand together, (laughs) and everything's going to be great. Um, and it was just like everyone, you know, lock arms and start singing Kumbaya. And yes, there's this, just this constant sense that whenever there's a conflict, um, I don't know, Tiberius, like he's a, he's a good character, he's a, you know, Jeremiah Irons plays him fascinatingly, but I still find it hard to believe that everyone just sat around and was like, oh yeah, as long as we all work together, this is going to be paradise. Um, I, I don't buy it. I mean, I found that a problem in the film, actually, that I don't think he really made his his mind up about it. I, I was going to bring up, this up with the history thing, actually, but uh, Skidley Rot is rather confused and inconsistent about the kingdom of Jerusalem. Sometimes it's supposed to be this, this idyll where Christian, Muslim and Jew live in harmony. At other times, it's this venal, violent intrusion into the world and the rightful owners of the land. And Tiberius rather reflects that. He sort of takes both views. Later on, he says, oh, dear, I do feel awful about this. Really, it's all about wealth and power, not God. Never mind, I'm off to my castle now. Good luck with keeping Jerusalem. Bye. You know, it's terribly confused about what it wants to say about Jerusalem. And we, we can talk about what it, what Outremer was really like uh, in a minute. But I, he just doesn't get his act together at all. It it does feel like, um, A, the film pulls a lot of its punches, but B, it is struggling to present like modern analysis of the Gulf War and America's kind of foreign policy in the early 2000s alongside um, the conflict uh, between Israel and Palestine uh, and kind of all of this like modern 
you know, 21st century, 20th century history. Mm. It's trying to take that, implant it onto, um, you know, history from a thousand years ago, and then also try mm-hmm. and do both justice at the same time. It, it, it doesn't quite, it doesn't quite work. No, it's too, it's just far too complicated. Um, and also, you know, just too un, unaware of what these people really would have been like and how they would have thought. I mean, he's not wrong in many, you know, again, we get history, but in many ways, Outremer was an extremely fractious place and itself was very confused about uh, what it was and what it was like. And some of that comes across in the movie OK, I think. But this hammering away at everything to do with the church is bad and that people were very cynical about their religion it just was too much for me do well did you read that um supposedly ridley scott's intention was to make a biopic of salah Salahadeen, if i've said that correctly all right and that was that was the original movie and then okay. when and that over time that changed over a few years and you know this was kind of the movie that, that grew out of that so maybe that gives you mm. some idea about what he's interested in and what he wanted yeah. to show, and then maybe why you know there's aspects of of that kind of original film that seem to exist in this. I mean, a, a film by Salah Hadeen would be fantastic because I mean he's a genuinely fascinating character who transforms the Islamic world and completely changes changes the landscape of where from uh, a very fractious Syria was able to be conquered by a bunch of barbarians. And he brings the whole world back together again and integrates Egypt and all the rest of it. And that's the end of, or the beginning of the end for Outremer. So he's a fascinating character. And I loved him in the, the film, actually. You know, you're, if you're looking for sort of goodies and you're looking for, you know, solid, decent people with the right sort of value set, he was really good. Uh, incredibly charismatic. Yeah. Couple of other things then, going back to this Herculean Herculean suspension of disbelief. There's a German at one point who fights on merrily with an arrow through his neck. This is in the ambush scene when Balian's dad is going back to the uh, back to Outremer and they ambushed and I mean first of all an arrow goes through one of their numbers face and they all just sit around, you know, continuing to sup on their tea. Nobody turns a hair, which seemed like an odd reaction to be honest wolf you know if you get an arrow through your face now while i'm looking at you i will say at least something like you know i don't know ooh, or wolf did you know you've got an arrow through your face or Blue something like that you know blooming egg and then later in the scene this guy is german bloke who's been shot through his neck with an arrow gets up and it starts laying around with an axe no you don't you've got an arrow through your neck uh yeah now i remember bit annoying that i mean I, you know i picked that for effect and then why does david thewlis have obviously peroxided hair <laughs> it is I mean, it is strange did they have peroxide back there i mean you know i know there were blonde people but not peroxided people were there i don't know i'm not not aware of that i mean what a bizarre choice and actually he's a hot uh hospital hospitaller and he doesn't even believe in god excuse me i mean a scandal Okay, any other things that I should have talked about as disliking in the movie Wolf? Um, I mean, I personally was not much of a fan of the amount of like VFX and slow-mo and other things that were used in the film. To me, 
the action scenes are not as good and the combat scenes are not as good because they're all shot in the same way. There's always this kind of weird filter over the top of everything to either make it darker or brighter or to make it seem like there's snow everywhere for like 40 minutes or dust. And the combat continually goes like in and out of these slow-mo moments. And it doesn't really, it doesn't, doesn't really work for me. It's, it's like trying too hard. That's right. kind of my opinion on it. I must admit, I rather, I, I'm not as sophisticated as you, Wolf, and I did rather lap up or, uh, the action scenes, but I, but I know exactly what you mean. He is trying too hard. It is a classic sort of follow-up to a world-beating movie in Gladiator, isn't it? Yeah, but I think the difference is, to me, in Gladiator, and I'd have to rewatch it again, but what, what lasts so much in my memory is, is the like, combat scenes, the battle sequences, are near perfection. I think... I think what I mean is that when you've done a film that good, oh yeah, you know you're in real trouble, aren't you? You know when um, you think about doing the next thing and making people look up and think this is even better. Well, you probably try too hard, don't you? Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's trying too hard and just an over reliance on, um, yeah, on the, on these these effects. And that's why, like, when they get to Medina or some of the other places, um, it's so obviously this giant. Um, computer-generated image. Maybe it's because the movie's mm. old now, but there isn't as... I don't get as much authenticity and like feel um, for the place yeah. from this film because um, it feels quite glossy. Um, and then the last thing, because it's Orlando Bloom and because of the siege towers, almost all of the attack on... I know that Legolas isn't at Minas Tirith, but so much of the <laughs> attack on Jerusalem feel... I'm, I'm waiting... I'm, grand... Grand, yeah. like it. I just I feel the Lord of the Rings so much in aspects of this movie. Um, You're waiting for the uh, the Southrons to appear of their with their olifants. Yeah, and to me, Orlando Bloom has this like one personality type, which is like, and when he's kind of works is when he's just quiet and reserved, but not as a main character. Like Legolas works because he doesn't have to talk very much, and he just has to stare yes. places with his elf yes, eyes. And say, and say there are things like they're carrying the the hobbits to Isengard and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so to me, he doesn't have the breadth to convey all the emotions he's going yeah. through in this film. And so because he's just depressed for most of the film, he's always just sat around staring. <laughs> and <laughs> it's I'm true. Like, I mean, I think we're writing him down a bit, but his battle speech sucked. Yeah. And because I'm comparing it to, because I'm thinking about Lord of the Rings. I'm yes. picturing Viggo Mortensen as Aragorn giving yes. his speeches, and this I'm like, "This is not that day." Argh! And I feel so aroused. <clears throat> and then there's and aroused, um, and then <laughs> Orlando Bloom's there, and I'm just like, "Oh, it's yeah. not, not really working." Come for on, me. give it, give it your best shot, guys. Yeah, I mean, it's just not good. I agree. It's a shame because I didn't dislike Orlando in the film. To be honest, some things I quite liked about him, but yeah, he's just not. You just can't carry such a big movie. You're absolutely right. Not okay, free. should we talk? A, should we talk about historical accuracy? Yes, Wolf. Or shall we not talk about historical accuracy? No, take take me through it because there's a lot here. Okay, so I've just got one question for you to begin with. Mm-hmm. On a scale of one to ten, okay, mm-hmm. with ten being very, mm-hmm. and one being not very. How likely do you think it is that the Queen of Jerusalem in the 12th century would welcome becoming a blacksmith's wife in the south of France? You may score your answer to an accuracy of two decimal points. 
Um, zero. Correct. You got the right answer. Yay. Um, <laughs> so I do that to introduce the general thing. So the film was a historical record then. This is what the film gets right. There is a place called Jerusalem and people fought over it. Good start. Mm, that's also the end, though, I fear. <laughs> I think we need to put tumbleweed effects in that. I mean, I exaggerate for effect. Uh, Balian is an odd hybrid. There was a Balian of Ibeline, but he was very much an insider, not an outsider, married to uh, a Byzantine princess called Maria Komnena. In the political melee, of which the film gives a reasonable impression, actually, you know, all this infighting of factions, Balian was indeed rather opposed to Guy de Lusignan and Reynard de Châtillon and their faction, uh, and he did lead the defence of Jerusalem. Sibylla existed, um, as did Baldwin, and he was indeed a leper. A leper. Uh, Tiberius is supposed to be Raymond of Tripoli, I think, and Raymond of Tripoli is a very tricky character. Uh, at one stage, he actually gives right of passage to an army raised by Salah Adin, which goes on to sort of slaughter and um, ravage various bits of Outremer. So he's a very political character rather than this pillar of all that is true and right. But then, hey, this is drama. I mean, it's a forgivable sin, I guess. As I mentioned, Skidlerot is rather confused and inconsistent about the Kingdom of Jerusalem and it, whether it's a, this idyll of equality and religious freedom or uh, the home of you know, hideous Christianity. And what doesn't really come over in the, in the film is there is a lot of religious conflict, obviously, not just between Muslim and uh, Christian, but also be, between Christian and Jew. But also, we're after the, the first schism in Christianity, so there's a lot of feeling that the, um, the Orthodox Syrians who had lived there for thousands of years and found a, and found a way for hundreds of years to get along with the, um, the Muslim invaders actually hated all this Latin lot who came from abroad, who were very arrogant about their form of Christianity and thought the other lot were splitters. And actual fact, when Jerusalem fell, a lot of the um, Orthodox were not terribly upset that the Latins had got their asses kicked. So it is a very complex world. Uh, actually, that doesn't come out too much, but certainly the complexity is... I think, comes across. It's been criticised for being too critical of Crusaders. You know, they're presented as relentless bloody murder, murderers and Salah Adin and the Arabs as, as noble and peace-loving types and all very bright and particularly well-groomed, actually, whereas Reynard de Chatillon's beard clearly hadn't seen a comb for years, if ever. There is actually some truth in this. So the Crusaders, when they captured Jerusalem, slaughtered, Muslims to a man, woman, and child. It's a bloodbath. The, you know, the streets run with blood. Whereas when Salah Adin takes Jerusalem, it is rather more uh, cultured. Reynard de Chatillon did indeed raid Muslim merchants uh, against the terms of a truce. Baldwin is is rather heroic figure in the film. Actually, he was a rather weak king. And the reason Jerusalem falls and the war happens at that time, although it probably would have happened sometime because Salah Hadin wanted Jerusalem back. 
Baldwin couldn't control men like Reynard de Chatillon and Guy de Lusignan. Uh, and it was this that led to war because he did not hand over Reynard de Chatillon when he murdered the Muslim merchants. Guy de Lusignan did indeed make a monumental screw up at the horns of Hattin. On the other hand, there is another side to it. You know, Salah Hadin was was more, more merciful about the fall of Jerusalem. He didn't allow everyone to leave for free, though. The Christians who left, who were allowed to leave, had to pay a ransom. Those who could not pay a ransom were enslaved. So the film, again, goes a little bit too far in presenting, you know, light and dark. Didn't... I think I also read another article that the speech that's, that Balian makes about, I'll burn everything to the ground and you'll never get the city. There's some truth yeah. to it, but that maybe what he was referring to in reality was he was going to destroy all of the 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 dome and the you know Muslim relics and kill all of the Muslim slaves uh, that were in the city. I think he says half of that. He says he'll destroy all the the relics and buildings. I don't think he says in the film that he would. I think there is some truth in that. Yes, that. Um, Basically, uh, I mean, he was on hiding to nothing and he had to negotiate and get some sort of deal. And Salah Hadin had vowed that he would take Jerusalem by the sword and therefore had to find a way round that if he was going to accept this deal. Mm. I think what it does get right also is about this sense of insiders and outsiders. So... What happens in Outremer is this extraordinary society grows up where the people, the original invaders who built up the Crusader kingdoms kind of go native to a degree and they take up dress because, of course, the local dress, because, of course, you know, um, it's it's really hot. And they have to sort of meld in and they do create a more tolerant society because... There's not much else they can do. They're surrounded by this sea of Muslim kingdoms. Um, and then you get all these in incomers, these new guys. So people like Reynard de Chatillon um, and uh, Guy de Lusignan, who are adventurers. And when they arrive, they're horrified to see these people living side by side with infidels. So there is that dichotomy between the insiders and the outsiders. And, you know, Guy de Lusignan was as much of an idiot as the film portrays him. So there's kind of good and bad in it. You know, I, I think as a spectacle, you know, I, I like all that politicking and all the rest of it. Uh, things like, you know, Baldwin's son being killed by his mother uh, for mercy's sake, you know, is unknowable. Seems unlikely, but is unknowable. He does die young. So... By and large, it doesn't try hard to stick to the truth, but it doesn't get everything wrong, is my super summary. Yeah, I mean, that sounds reasonable. That's from mostly what I was reading. I think the only frustrating thing mm. about it is I think we're more than happy to suspend uh, disbelief and just be like, okay, yeah, uh, I'm happy that this is a blacksmith and he's going to go on this huge arc mm. and that he's you know, going to be a bastard and he's going to, he's going to achieve all this incredible stuff. Like part, I can be like, okay, fine. I can allow, I can let that happen. Mm. But then I think it's just 
the the framework is kind of there, but so much is altered, and it feels so obviously modern in in every one of its viewpoints. Which, I mean, I guess then at the same time, I complain when a movie doesn't feel you know current. Um, yeah. there's, there's just a, a balancing act that I think needs to be had, and I enjoyed it for what it was, but I definitely didn't come away from this film thinking I had learned much about the Crusades. Yes. But that's fine. Yes. I, I'm kind of, I'm kind of on board with that, and I was pleased in the research to see that you know a bunch of this stuff did happen, like when Salahadine uh, kills uh, Reynard. Yes, I was reading that it happened like that, and I was like, okay, so there are these moments in there which are you know, you know, genuinely accurate, you know, recreations, and yeah, yeah, I, I'm not too critical, but I guess that's partly because it, it keeps me at a distance the whole time with its it, it's kind of a religious and political views which are like let's let's be chill everyone and be friends the sad thing in a way is that the story of Outremer and indeed this particular story about the fall of jerusalem is so dramatic i think my complaint is why do you have to make all this other tripe up and i suppose you know ridley scott of course is a considerably better filmmaker than i am and he probably knows that people are not going to go with a world where faith is just part of the water and where heresy endangers the whole community with the wrath of God and therefore must be stamped out. You know, it's a difficult concept to get. One day, I hope somebody has the courage to give it a go, though. I don't know, maybe listeners could suggest a film which really does sympathetically and realistically portray the times as they were i mean i find i think when people do try it then they, they tend to move into simple brutality again with chronological snobbery involved because we cannot bear to conceive that the past might be different maybe folks sitting in a colonial outpost on the veldt and maybe they could believe they were there for good reasons and for the right reasons. And maybe we understand them a little better if we understand that. Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I I wonder. That is a, a reference to next week's movie. Yes, which I didn't want to engage with too much. <laughs> no, I think, yeah, I think that that's, it's that constant line you've got to walk. You want to make a movie that's, really enjoyable, has mass appeal, doesn't really offend anyone. And ironically, he went right down the middle and offended both sides. So no one was particularly pleased with how he treated religion in this film. And I think that's probably the way you've always got to go rather than taking a really hard stance. And if you do, it's then a, a film that's less viewed. It won't be as popular. Yeah. You know, won't have this, this mass appeal. And all Ridley Scott does these days is make giant blockbusters that, you know... Yeah that everyone has to flock to see. So he's not really going to challenge people too much. I mean, he does a bit the same with his Robin Hood thing. Uh, you know, he packs a whole load of modern sensibilities into it in terms of making Robin Hood this sort of, you know, Magna Carta fighting for, feeding, for freedom. In that case, I f it feels a little bit more forgivable to me because Robin Hood has indeed become a symbol of that sort of thing. And maybe that's the answer here, that, well, Outremer has become a symbol of uh, religious warfare. And therefore, maybe that's why he feels he's justified in such a one-eyed view. 
Yeah, I assume the general consensus is, is the Crusades were terrible and um, a mess. We should never do them. The Crusades were no more terrible than anything else. I mean, you know, the Arab world had swept out of the Arab Arabian Peninsula and swept away an empire of a Christian empire and North Africa and Spain and all the rest of it. You know, it's it's history. It's Out of interest, David, and this is the last point I'll make on the movie, when Richard the Lionheart appears at the end of this movie, did you, in your own mind, immediately compare it to another appearance of Richard the Lionheart at the very end of another movie? This is why I mentioned the lack of Edinburgh accent. Oh, okay, sorry. Now I get it. That's I didn't... Indeed, absolutely. It was exactly like him appearing Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, one yeah. of the world's greatest movies, obviously. Um. The difference being is when he appears in Robin Hood, everyone's like, oh, my God, everyone, like, bows down. And, you know, he's this majestic individual walking in. Whereas because of Ridley's viewpoint, when Richard the Lionheart turns up, he's this, like, simpering fool um, who's, you know, off to fight a stupid war. And there's absolutely no grace or glory surrounded by this character. And obviously, it's interpretation, but an interesting comparison about sort of 15 years apart. Yes, interesting. Actually, I must admit, I didn't. I wasn't sure why he appeared. Actually, I assume he's there to a lead us onto the the like epilogue bit of text, which is the next crusade has begun. The cycle of war and hate continues. Right. Yes, I suppose so. Yeah. And then the other part is just to remind you that Balian has achieved his full character arc, and he's you know he <laughs> found. I guess he went to the Holy Land to find himself, and he did, and now he's perfectly happy. Um, and he yes. doesn't need to go on another religious crusade because he's not seeking forgiveness or, you know, to find yes. himself. I mean, that is true. That is something we haven't talked about, which is there is that character arc that both of these people find solace in the end in the simple life. I don't know. It feels a bit trite to me, but it is there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the whole. I guess the whole film is a little bit like on the nose with everything that it does. Um, yes, it's definitely all the reaction shots of Eva Green hearing old Balian's speeches during this. Yeah. Like, I'm like, no, you're locked up inside. How did you hear anything that this guy said all the way out there on the wall? <laughs> anyway, are we done? Yes. With, with, would you tell anybody to go and see this film? Um, yeah, yeah, I think I would. I think that they'd obviously have to be interested because it's, it's so long. Why? It's I appreciated rewatching it, despite whatever you know moaning I might have done through this. It was a better film than I remember it being. So maybe that is the director's cut. It had it was trying to do some things, even if it didn't quite work. And I appreciated and enjoyed that. I thought it was pretty entertaining, and yeah, there's a there's a richness to the film which is kind of enjoyable to like lounge in. And, and kind of see it all unfold. And some of the set pieces are incredible. So I think if you're interested in kind of this piece of here, uh, piece of history, uh, you can gain something from watching this. Yeah, I kind of agree with all of that, actually. It is, it really is very rich and it's very visual and it's a great story. I think I would advise somebody to just suspend your disbelief and not worry about all the inconsistencies that the director's cut kind of deals with by giving you more information and just go and see the theatrical version and just enjoy the fun and do not think too much about the history and the Christianity stuff. 
and then it's you know it's it's a good way of spending a couple of hours two and a half hours good right so we're going to score it are we as a film what would you score it uh six of ten six that's exactly what i have historic accuracy what would you score it i feel like you're going to score it low might do might not i think maybe i'd say a four ah perfect on the nose that's what i had too okay good lord we completely agreed for once Woo. what do i win uh, you win a your respect. I don't know eternal You're respect. My, my respect, indeed. Yes, indeed. My, my eternal respect. Right, that is very good. Well, look, everybody, come along and join us on Facebook. Tell us what you think, and tell us what we're wrong, and all the rest of it, and all the rest of it, and uh, and vote. And then next time, Wolf and I will be talking about the film Zulu. Looking forward to it. So that should be a hoot then. Thank you very much for listening. Goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Bye. Are you not entertained? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.